0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: And we're back with our latest work-from-home edition of Cases and Controversies. We're recording this on Thursday, April 2nd, across two different time zones. This week, we've got a wide-ranging episode. We're going to recap the court's latest decisions, problems with the SCOTUS website, RBG's workout schedule, and a new grant for next term stemming from a complex case of mistaken identity. Later in the episode, we're going to be joined by Tom Goldstein, who argued the decision that the justices put out this week And he's going to talk about a few issues that the court is confronting during the COVID-19 outbreak.
1: Hey, that case of mistaken identity sounds interesting. Can we talk about that one first?
0: Yeah, so the underlying facts of the case are pretty wild, but the issue that the Supreme Court actually agreed to hear is a pretty technical one.
1: All right, let's let's uh, let's do the wild facts first before we get into all that law stuff. What do you say?
0: Do a little warm-up? All right, warm-up yeah. the audience. All right, so in 2014, James King was walking near a gas station in Grand Rapids, Michigan, when officers Todd Allen and Douglas Brownback mistook King for a fugitive. Now, King loosely fit a very general description of the man that they were looking for. Uh, here is that description. He was a 26-year-old white male between 5'10 and 6'3" with glasses, short dark hair, and a thin build.
1: That describes most of Grand Rapids, Michigan, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> I think it describes most of the United States. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Allen and Brownback, who were in plain clothes at the time that they encountered King, stopped king now there's some dispute as to whether or not the officers told king that they were in fact officers but king says he didn't know that and so when the officers took his wallet out of his pocket he thought he was being mugged so of course he ran what ensued was a brawl between king and the officers and the incident actually only ended when bystanders called police on the officers themselves fearful that they were actually going to kill king
1: wow Well, that is pretty crazy. So what happened then? They just uh, let him go, said sorry, and sent him on his way?
0: Oh, yeah, that's definitely how that that went down. No, Uh, that's not what happened. Uh, They actually charged him with resisting arrest and assault on a police officer, but the jury was having none of that, and they actually ended up acquitting uh, King of those charges. And that's where we get started on the legal issue before the Supreme
1: Court. And what's that issue?
0: Well, after his acquittal, King sued the federal government and the two officers themselves. Now, the suit against the federal government was eventually dismissed, and now the United States is arguing that that dismissal actually nixes the case against the officers, too. So to back up a little bit, the question for the justices is whether the Federal Tort Claims Act, which waives sovereign immunity for the United States for certain tort claims, whether that statute's so-called judgment bar prohibits a later Bivens suit. So as a refresher, the FTCA is, a, is the claim that's brought against the federal government, whereas a Bivens suit, which is a judgment suit, is brought against the individual federal officers. Now, the FTCA's judgment bar says that where there's been a judgment on an FTCA claim, the plaintiffs can't bring another suit involving the, quote, same subject matter. So the lower court, though, interpreted that bar pretty narrowly, and it said a dismissal for failure to state a claim under the FTCA doesn't trigger the judgment bar, and it allowed the plaintiffs bib suit against the officers to go forward. And that's the issue that the justices will decide.
1: Right. And so the justices granted the petition from the government, right? But King himself also filed his own cert petition too, right?
0: Well, they did. There was a cross petition filed by King about whether the subsequent claim should really be considered a Bivens action or whether it should be one under 42 U.S.C. 1983. And The Bivens action is against federal officials. 1983 is against state officials. And the problem here is that the two officers were part of a joint state federal task force. So... Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the issue you're on, the court decided not to hear that case. Um, So we'll just be doing the judgment bar. Exciting times.
1: Yeah, well, that'll be one to watch for next term. And the court did issue an opinion on Monday as well in a maritime case. But that morning will probably be remembered more so for the fact that the opinions release was delayed on the Supreme Court's website for a whole 20 minutes. Remember that?
0: Well, didn't they do opinions last week electronically and that went off without a hitch?
1: It did. Um, This was the second week that the justices issued opinions electronically without taking the bench. And the first week where they issued four opinions, it did seem to go just fine electronically. Uh, But this time, with just one opinion, it did hit a snag. Uh, Afterwards, the court said that one of its servers sent a corrupt file to its content distribution provider, uh, whatever that means. Uh, The court said there are layers of checks in place to quickly identify such a problem. But due to human error, the problem took longer to identify this time that's what the court said anyway the court refused to identify the human but um, they'll just live on in infamy as the person who delayed for 20 minutes the case of Sitko against Friscotti
0: justice delayed well our fellow Bloomberg reporter Greg store noted that these kinds of glitches at the Supreme Court are pretty rare but he did recall an incident back in 2014 where the court actually omitted like 30 pages from its orders list whoops is that bad? So this was during the time when the court was being asked to take up uh, the same-sex marriage bans. Uh, so the press room was pretty packed that day, waiting mm-hmm. for any news. And those 30 pages that were omitted actually included the orders about the same-sex marriage cases. Um, so, yeah, it was a little chaotic.
1: All right. So could have been worse. And we know that the justices, again, in their most recent private conference on Friday, uh, called into the court with Chief Justice Roberts— running the running the point from the court itself. So Chief Justice Roberts was there and everyone called in, right?
0: Why? Why is that necessary for him to go into the court?
1: Um, I don't know, maybe, you know, uh, it's an excuse for him to get out of the house. You know, you could see, you know, everybody's kind of stuck at home, getting a little stir-crazy, you know, who knows?
0: We have learned some other news about the justices in the court, though, too, right, Jordan?
1: Yes. So we did learn that the Chief Justice is not the only justice who has been going into the Supreme Court, although not necessarily for work. What does that mean? Well, We learned that Justice Ginsburg has apparently been keeping up her famous workout routine by going to the court and working out with her trainer. At least she was, and it's actually still not totally clear exactly what she's doing or who she's doing it with, but we'll get into that a little bit more.
0: Why doesn't she just, you know, watch The Colbert Show or like read that book about her workout and, you know, forgo going to the gym?
1: I don't know. Maybe it's something about these justices. They just, you know, they just can't stay put. They just they just got to get out of the house. Um, so we, there was a story that came out on Tuesday uh, that talked about how Justice Ginsburg had still been keeping up her routine, according to her trainer. And the story came out on Tuesday night, basically caused all of Twitter to explode with liberals wondering what the heck she's thinking. Um, but then on Wednesday morning, a story came out, and Wednesday is the day that D.C.'s Stay at home order took effect. With her trainer saying, "Okay, they actually had called off their sessions." So everyone says, "Okay, well, but wait, there's more." Later on Wednesday, after this story comes out saying that according to the trainer they had called off the sessions, the court says uh, Justice Ginsburg is using the court gym, but she's the only one using it. So oh, that's a that's a great
0: idea to have Justice Ginsburg and hanging out and working out alone lift in some ways.
1: Well, it says she's the only one who's using the gym. I guess it doesn't say exactly whether she's totally alone or how she's getting there or anything like that. But, you know, I don't know if that really takes care of people's fears, even if she is just there alone. And, you know, I don't remember exactly what her routine is, but you hope that somebody's there, right, to give her a spot if she needs to, you know, when she's trying to, you know, max out on the bench. (laughs) Um, But at the same time you hope whoever that person is. What do you think
0: that max is? What do you think her max is?
1: um, I know what it is, but I I told her that I would not tell anybody and I cannot break that confidence
0: Well, maybe Justice Spreyer can call up uh, his colleague and give her some tips on how to safely social distance
1: Yeah, we also learned that Justice Breyer has been uh, complying with the stay-at-home order up at his place in Massachusetts. Apparently, he's been uh, cooking a pot roast, and he's been watching movies and having some nice family time and going for jobs and and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that was a good story, too, because you could just really... You could really hear Justice Breyer in his voice describing in detail this pot roast recipe that he got (laughs) on the Internet.
0: Yeah, uh, that was a story by Jess Braven, and there were a lot of really good tidbits in there. Like, I didn't know that Justice Breyer went on a daily two-mile run.
1: That's what he says.
0: Uh, Apparently, he had the interview while he was on the run. That's, wow. Yeah, I
1: saw that. I was wondering exactly, you know, maybe, you know, Because you can't imagine that all the justices love talking to the press. You know, maybe he got a request and was like, man, I don't want to do this. But maybe that could like break up his run if he wasn't really feeling it that day. He's like, oh, well, you know, all right, I got to do this interview. You know, all the justices are making excuses.
0: Uh, Well, we're hoping that all of the justices are staying healthy, like Justice Breyer. I'm looking at you, Justice Ginsburg. Anyway, Jordan, um, let's tee up this maritime opinion before we bring on Tom. Now, Justice Sotomayor's majority opinion for the court said that this case involved, quote, a complicated series of proceedings, including a 41-day trial, a subsequent 31-day evidentiary hearing, and two appeals. Um, Jordan, can you sum it up for us in less than 41 days?
1: I'll give it a shot. So Sitco, a subchartered an oil tanker from Friscotti Shipping Company, and toward the end of its voyage from Venezuela to New Jersey, a classic voyage, uh, an abandoned ship anchor punctured the tanker's hull uh, whatever that is, and uh, 264,000 gallons of heavy crude oil spilled into the Delaware River, and so that led to a dispute between Sitgo and others collectively referred to as Carco on one side and for Scotty on the other side over who was liable to clean up the mess. And that was costing over $100 million. So we have a big money dispute here. And it's a dispute that came down to a contract issue between the companies over a quote unquote, safe birth clause. And the question is whether Carco had provided an express warranty of safety in the clause as the charterer, or whether the charterer just had to do its due diligence. So it's a pretty technical question, but a lot of money at stake. And in a 7-2 opinion by Justice Sotomayor, the court said that the safe birth clause establishes a warranty of safety, not just due diligence, and so Carco is liable. We had Justice Thomas writing a dissent for himself and Justice Alito, where he said, quote, I appreciate the majority's desire to interpret the safe birth clause in a manner that provides clarity to the maritime industry. The plain meaning of the contract's text, however, does not support the majority's interpretation, end quote.
0: Wow, so I think that the justices have um, boats on the mind during their stay-at-home orders because didn't they issue that trademark case involving Blackbeard's ship? The copyright
1: case, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, Allen against Cooper. Yeah, well, I guess they're all we're all kind of uh, marooned, you know, as <laughs> oh, we say on the uh, high seas.
0: Well, I think that's a good time to bring on someone else. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring on our guest now, Tom Goldstein. He's a partner at Goldstein and Russell and the producer of Scotus Blog. He's argued 43 cases at the High Court, including the Sitco case. And he was set to argue his 44th last month on behalf of Google before the March arguments were postponed. Tom, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Well, congrats on your latest win. Uh, Jordan and I talked a little bit about the case before you came on. But can you talk about some of the implications of the decision?
2: Well, I think that the major implication of the decision is certainty. There was some doubt in the maritime community about what you did with these charter party agreements that had safe birth clauses. And while a lot of the kind of international tribunals, uh, particularly uh, in England, arbitration, uh, in New York also arbitration... Had understood the provisions to be uh, warranties, there was some contrary authority, and and this is a note that Justice Thomas says at the beginning of his dissent. In fact, at least now everybody agrees that there is a baseline, and you can negotiate off it if you don't want to provide a warranty, and you are uh, providing, you are the charterer, then you can just negotiate for a different provision.
0: Right. I like how Justice Thomas tries to find a little silver lining
2: for his dissent. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So,
1: Tom, you were set to argue last month in a big case, the Google against Oracle dispute, but that's one of them that along with arguments over subpoenas into President Trump's financial records that the court postponed. Can you talk at all about how the March postponement is affecting your preparation for that argument, if it ever happens, and Relatedly, what you think the court is going to do with the March
2: session cases. Well, that's evolved a little bit, to be honest. Immediately after we got the postponement, it was realistic that the court was going to hear argument in the case in April. And so we kind of kept up our pace. We had a contingency plan for this to deal with the prospect of the court um, moving the argument back. And so we went into a new pattern of moot courts so that we were holding moot courts midday every Thursday, in addition to just our general preparation work. Uh, We kept that up, and then we had another moot court at the beginning of this week. But now we've just decided that it really isn't practical to expect that the justices will hold oral argument in the case in April either, and we've geared it down so that there are some issues that we're working through and trying to resolve um, some better ways of phrasing things that we're working on, but we aren't really in an, any kind of intensive phase, so that we would be able to argue the case uh, with total comfort in two weeks because it's just that's not going to happen, and and we feel comfortable predicting that um, we do expect that the court. Uh, will give everybody at least a month's notice. Now, that's not based on any inside information. It's just how they work. So, you know, there'll come a time where they let us know what it is that they're planning to do, and we'll gear back up. I don't think that even they are likely to know that right now. It's such a fluid situation. It's so hard to know exactly what it is uh, that they can do in this situation, um so I expect that you know we may um it may be a while before we have some more certainty.
0: So uh you kind of hinted at this um in your answer to Jordan but what about the April sitting do you think that's pretty much uh, a foregone conclusion that they're going to postpone those as well?
2: I suppose I think that the April sitting as it was originally designed can't go forward because it would be illegal on some <laughs> <laughs> levels because you're not allowed to be outside in uh, and doing business like that in D.C. I, I suppose maybe the courts are essential, uh, but it would be it would be it would be unusual, and I think it would send an odd message. That it also would be dangerous uh, for the lawyers, the staff, and the justices themselves. So no, I I think that the those two weeks at the very least are going to have to be postponed. Now, what it is that they do. And whether it is they might have a day of oral argument is another matter. In general, I think that nothing's going to happen in April. And then there's the prospect that in May, perhaps, or in June, perhaps, they could argue a couple of the cases that are more time-sensitive while either deciding uh, some of the remaining cases on the papers or having them argued in the fall.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I know I'm recording here from Virginia where we're under a stay-at-home order until June 10th.
2: So, Yeah, and I expect that we don't know, again, because they're working out themselves what to do. They are a very tradition-bound institution, and there aren't really traditions to deal with this, but they are a consensus-based institution in the sense that the chief justice has an enormous say in what happens here, and I think is really respected inside the building for his ability to manage difficult situations. But he will you know, need to bring uh, the entire court together on a plan, uh, and a plan that they've never had to have uh, this, quite this serious a contingency plan for, even you know, 100 years ago with Spanish flu.
0: Yeah, I really love that detail that um, when they announced the postponement of the March arguments, they said, "Don't worry, this is totally, you know, usual. It's not unprecedented." The court closed down, you know, in ni- 1918 in the Spanish flu. So,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now all about the precedent.
1: So, uh, Tom, the uh, Scotus blog has a, a series up now talking about courtroom access, the nuts and bolts of courtroom seating, lines for public access. Do you think that given this unprecedented situation that we're in, we could possibly see any type of break in the court's precedent in terms of its reluctance to have any kind of live streaming or increased same-day audio for its arguments as a way to resolve this situation?
2: I probably would split those in two in terms of live streaming, I can't imagine. Because they are a precedent-bound institution, and if they set a precedent for live streaming then it's going to be very hard to say, well, we can't do that all the time. And they really don't want to do that. They've made that very, very, very clear. And apparently, they haven't even, it's so such a consensus inside the building among the justices that they haven't even discussed it in years. Now, when it comes to same-day audio, that's a little bit different because they do have precedent for that in very high-profile cases. They've essentially stopped doing it and substituted it with the general availability of oral argument audio on the Friday of the argument week. But uh, they have the capacity to, for really important cases, have the audio out to the public in the afternoon of the oral argument. So if they did, for example, hold oral argument in any time-sensitive cases, maybe the Trump tax return cases, maybe the cases about how the Electoral College works... I would expect that they would exclude a public audience and instead release the audio the same day, uh, explaining that it was because of the high-profile nature of the cases and the exigency.
0: Well, um, great. I think that covers about everything that we wanted to chat with you about. Um, Is there anything else that we're missing, Tom?
2: No, I hope everybody stays safe and everybody, like Justice Ginsburg, is continuing their workout regimens, (laughs) but doing it in an extremely healthy way. (laughs) Well, Thanks, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Well, we will continue to bring you audio, although it usually is not same-day audio, uh, here on Cases and Controversies. You can stay up-to-date with all the latest Supreme Court and coronavirus news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Stay safe. Ooh, I did it the first time
1: this time. Nailed it. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable
0: energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.